A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 31st of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have €3 million Euro or thereabouts between them to spend on a campaign if something happens that causes a snap general election. Negotiations between the two parties on a new agreement to extend the life of the current Fine Gael minority government are underway. Each are examining documents today on how the other proposes a successor to the confidence and supply agreement. Housing, health and broadband are being reported to be the main issues the parties will look to in reaching an agreement. A full day of talks is to be held tomorrow. And Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with the Mead Chronicle, joins us now to look at the prospects or failure uh, in terms of uh, reaching an agreement. Gavin, good morning and thanks for joining us. Is it right to say that there's mixed views in both parties as to whether to continue with this arrangement or to look at spending that €3 million that I, I mentioned and go to the people. Yeah, I think I think it's probably fair to say that there is mixed feelings on both sides because certainly within the, the Fianna Fáil side, you, you've always had this historical uh, view of antagonism where it just really sits uneasily with a lot of people in Fianna Fáil, the idea that they might be continually, as, as they see it, propping up a Fine Gael government and, and not getting very much by way of policy concessions out of them in return. So there's quite a, a large uh, clump within Fianna Fáil who would rather just take the plunge and go straight away. Uh, but of course, that's slightly put on ice by the most recent um, opinion poll we have, which is the exit poll from last Friday's uh, presidential election, which showed that if the same electorate were to show up at the ballot box tomorrow, Fine Gael would get 35% of the vote uh, and Fianna Fáil would only get 22 So there is a, uh, a, a, quite a, a certain reluctance, perhaps, on Fianna Fáil's part, maybe to, to look to cash in that defeat, so to speak, and, and to, to be resigned to what could be another sp- spell on the, the opposition benches and, moreover, possibly even having to support Fine Gael a second time around. So that, that's on the, the mm. Fianna Fáil side. On the Fine Gael side, again, you have a similar, uh, you know, a push, particularly among some cabinet ministers, that they would really like to just take the plunge in the stands right now to cash in that lead to get 35 over 22 to, to come within striking distance of maybe being able to put together a majority government if you bring on a couple of coalition partners. Um, so they feel that it's really the sort of thing that they might like to do. Um, but by the same token, they know that there is still a lot of flux coming up, and the one B word that keeps getting dropped time and time again uh, in these talks is Brexit and the idea that you know when it's original. Deal was struck. Brexit was only a you know a twinkle in the eye. The referendum hadn't happened yet. Nobody expected it to actually come anywhere close to passing. Uh, and now we find ourselves within a couple of weeks of what could be a crucial Brussels summit, where everyone's going to decide that in fact there won't be a deal at all. And there is, I think, a general consensus, and not only in, in Fine Gael, to be fair, but also in Fianna Fáil 
that if Ireland is facing into uh, a no-deal Brexit and we don't exactly know what sort of trading conditions or economic circumstances we're going to be looking at in the middle of next spring, then there's very little sense or point in plunging the country into even greater doubt or even greater uh, instability by potentially having a general election that doesn't produce the traditional sort of results that we're used to seeing. Uh, so there are, there, are, there are mixed feelings on both sides, which would be very interesting then to see uh, which ones do actually win out when the both parties get around the table properly tomorrow. But there's a, a lot of obstacles as well, isn't there? I mean, you're talking about the issues there, but before they get to the issues, they have to talk about uh, the talks and uh, what is it that they're talking about? Are they talking about extending this agreement by one year or two years? And it seems both parties differ on that. And the approach to whether it's one year or two years seems to be different as well, with Fianna Fáil looking to reflect on the last two and a half years and perhaps some of the failings of the government and Fine Gael looking to get on with it. Yeah, and, and of course, it's worth bearing in mind that from the very outset, Leo Varadkar has been very explicit about what he wants out of all of this and what he's looking for is uh, a renewal or slash extension of confidence and supply so that it, it gets him into the summer of 2020. But of course, Fianna Fáil would say that even by the terms of the existing deal, you can't begin to discuss a new one without at least completing a review of the old one first. And I suppose just to highlight just the, the sheer, um, you know, the, the gulf between the parties when they're looking at some of these things, um, Fine Gael accepts that, yes, they have committed to a review but they don't think that a review uh, could take very long and, and for the reasons that um, Kevin Doyle happens to outline in this morning's Irish Independence talking about how you know the, the previous deal took six or seven weeks to, to negotiate but an awful lot of that time was taken up with water charges which now don't need to be reviewed so Maxwell he believes that the review and Fine Gael believe that the review could be done within um, the space of a couple of days but Fianna Fáil would say that they really want to go through these things uh, line by line clause by clause and to discuss exactly why some of these things haven't materialised you know say for example some of the, the commitments that have been made on, on housing or the way to get around those. Fianna Fáil will, will want uh, a very long and I suspect a very deep and meaningful chat about how come uh, certain uh, you know funding hasn't, doesn't seem to have materialised or how come even when funding does materialise that there appear to be some other bottlenecks in the system that delay the, the delivery of houses and they're going to want to really discuss every last, uh, you know, the, the every I dotted and every T crossed and try and figure out exactly what the hold-ups are. So, you know, Fianna Fáil looking in, into all of this with a very big, um, you know, almost an encyclopedic approach to, you know, we're basically auditing the government from top to bottom whereas Fine Gael is basically presenting the attitude that everything is fine so why can't we, we toddle on and um, I, I thought it was very interesting even the fact that the two parties after their original agreements or original meeting last week um, even agreed to exchange discussion papers because it even suggested that in fact there had been some meeting of minds as to what exactly the two parties were, were discussing was it going to be the terms of a new deal or was it going to be the review of the old one and it seems from the reports of what was exchanged yesterday that in fact they're still none the clearer because Fianna Fáil submitted a document which was largely focused on the review of the last two and a half years and Fine Gael, as I understand it, uh, submitted a document which was largely focused on the 18 months coming up. Mm, indeed, uh, that article that uh, Kevin Doyle uh, has in the independent reporting on this uh, today says uh, that Fine Gael uh, document is short and simple and uh, looks at what was promised uh, the uh, progress report and commentary uh, but all in all uh, he says it's something like what a, a child brings home from primary school. Yeah, and 
and of course it, it's worth bearing in mind that when all of this was formally kicked off and we had Leo Varadkar exchanging letters with uh, Micheál Martin only a couple of months ago in fact Leo Varadkar did effectively already commit to his, his public shopping list because he outlined all of the things that he believed should or could be included in the renewal of confidence and supply so he's been quite transparent up front but I suppose that, that's where you reach the conclusion that you know a lot of this even if the parties are, are presenting this as being a, a, you know, a general substantive discussion about matters of state and whether the country can afford to have a general election in the next couple of months or whether it is perhaps the right thing for this thing to reach its natural conclusion um, Leo Varadkar when he published that original uh, list which was then made public and they outlined the, all the, the matters that he wished to, to try and tick off his belt for the next 18 months. Uh, there were no costings attached to any of them. And yet, very shortly afterwards, Leo Varadkar's spokesman told myself and other political reporters that um, if Fianna Fáil were to submit suggestions for what they might potentially like for the next 18 months, that all of their ideas would have to be costed. Now, that's kind of ironic, firstly, because obviously Leo Varadkar himself didn't cost any of the things that he put inside his own shopping list. But secondly, how are Fianna Fáil going to get any of their ideas costed except for going through the Minister for Finance? And of course, Pascal Donoghue is a member of the Fine Gael team that's actually negotiating all of these talks. So surely you'd think that the way to get it costed is to bring it to the Minister in the negotiating room and to discuss what's going on. So the idea that, that Leo Varadkar is trying to you know, outline his own uh, wish list and at the same time then you know, attack someone else for being kind of reckless or bringing forward uncostled ideas uh, goes to show that there is a certain amount of political pantomime behind all of this as well. All right, and if water charges was the stumbling block two and a half years ago in terms of reaching an agreement quickly. Perhaps broadband is the stumbling block this time around uh, because Fianna Fáil will look to distance itself from what people might perceive to be the failings of government. Uh, and the same can be said of housing and health. But it's very difficult, isn't it, for Fianna Fáil to distance it itself from an issue like housing, given that it said it would uh, abstain from voting in a dull vote uh, so that it could... Uh, address that issue in the budget just gone. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that they, they chose not to, to try and shove uh, Owen Murphy overboard because it was something that they wanted to have input in. Uh, then they were you know, outlining how the budget just gone was supposed to be a housing budget and they acknowledged that it's real bread and butter or the way that it would be analysed by the public is how many houses did it help to deliver. And really, in that general scheme of things, it was a budget that, that didn't seem to do an awful lot. You have this extra um, affordability measures, but those are things that are still going to take many years to come on stream. And a lot of the funding that was announced, in fact, was already in existence anyway, so it wasn't quite as radical a move as it is. Uh, and this is really where um, Fianna Fáil are going to find it much difficult second time around, because when you go into the, the, the original confidence supply talks, you mm. have the cover of saying you know, this is a general election, the people have voted, this is the doll that they elected and we're trying to make the best of whatever hand the public has dealt us. Second time around, Fianna Fáil will be now trying to hold a government to account, but it's of course it is a government that they have been instrumental in appointing for the last two and a half years. So it's very difficult for Fianna Fáil to divorce themselves from the outgoing government's uh, housing record or whatever when so much of that has been based around negotiations on the budget that they have been party to. Uh, and that's then going to present themselves with a difficulty that I don't think anyone in Irish politics has ever had before, which is how do you separate yourself from a record that you were instrumental in putting up? And of course this is the, the classic uh, difficulty that many Fianna Fáil members have, that they they have often seen, you know, for the last uh, couple of years, that they are the party with 
an awful lot of responsibility, but in fact, no power. Uh, mm. But the funny thing is that a lot of people in Fine Gael think exactly the same thing, that they have, you know, all of the responsibility of, of having to run the country, but they actually don't have the power to do anything because they are so strangled by the other. But certainly, it's going to be a very, very difficult thing for Fianna Fáil. And, and moving on to, to broadband, just as you mentioned mm. there very quickly, um, Timmy Dooley has been very vocal since the very day that Dennis Nocton resigned as the Minister for Communications. He believed, uh, before having seen the review of this, uh, this gentleman, Peter Smith, who is now trying to determine whether, in fact, the whole process is corrupted and needs to start again from scratch. They have been saying that they, if the general substance of the broadband bid was discussed between David McCourt and Dennis Nocton, that the whole thing basically needs to be thrown out and start again. Now, that suggests that if they've already made up their minds about whether this process is fatally corrupted from the off, then if Peter Smith comes back in a couple of weeks and says, no, this can still be salvaged, does Fianna Fáil go back in its word and say, that's fair enough, knowing that perhaps if Timmy Dooley were to be Minister for Communications next year, he might not like to have to start the whole thing from scratch? Um, or do what exactly do Fianna Fáil do? Because it, it seems that they've, they've kind of marked themselves to the very top of the hill, and although they've made quite a good uh, skill of being able to march themselves back down again, it's very difficult to see how you can simply turn around and accept someone else's verdict when you have already announced conclusively that the process is very fatally uh, besmirched. But of course, mm. you can be damn sure that if Fianna Fáil were to get into power, they would not want to start the whole thing and, and uh, to borrow the pun, turn it back off and on again. I, I was reading your column in the Chronicle this morning and uh, you were saying that this was a, a bad week for Michal Martin and all of this makes me wonder if the two parties can reach an agreement and if they don't, are they going to the polls? If that is uh, the case and Fine Gael takes a 13-point lead over Fianna Fáil, does that mean that Michal Martin's days are numbered? And are we looking at what you've described, uh, the chicken licking question, uh, which is uh, that the sky is falling in and Peter Casey may be the leader of Fianna Fáil and the uh, Taoiseach uh, the election after? First, of course, Fianna, uh, Peter Casey, if he were to be elected as leader of Fianna Fáil, he would need to be uh, a member of Fianna Fáil in the first place. There's no suggestion of him actually joining the party. But then if, even if he wanted to be a leader, he would have to get himself added to the ticket somewhere, probably in Donegal, where the ticket is already full. So I, I don't fancy his chances of getting onto it. Um, I think Michal Martin tends to be oddly calm about uh, opinion polls and things like this, and, and perhaps with good reason, because um, you know, often when you see national opinion polls and you see that Fine Gael have this quite a significant lead over Fianna Fáil, the attitude that Fianna Fáil take is that the party always tends to outperform whatever the opinion polls say. And part of the reason why they do that is because they believe that ultimately, if you go into a polling booth, you might not necessarily intend to vote Fianna Fáil, but you might end up going in to vote for a candidate who happens to be from Fianna Fáil. And it was certainly something that they saw in the last general election two and a half years ago, where the Fianna Fáil brand was still incredibly tainted from what had happened at the tail end of 2010 and the Troika and the downfall of, of um, Brian Cowan's government. And yet people at the start of that, those polls, Fianna Fáil were 12 or 14 points behind. And within the space of a three and a half week campaign, they got back to within one percentage point um, of Fine Gael. And that was partly because they believe that even if their national image isn't great, their local candidates tend to pull people over the line. So they won't be too panicked uh, about that kind of thing. I mean, obviously, this will be different circumstances. You know, Leo Varadkar's first general election is leader that he's perhaps seen as having a certain amount of stardust that Enda Kenny didn't have last time around. But Michal tends to be quite calm about these things. They have their own internal polling that suggests that they're always better. Uh, and, of course, the one thing that the great variable from uh, last Friday as well is that there were about 600 to 700,000 people, uh, nearly three-quarters of a million people, who would 
in the normal circumstances vote in a general election who didn't vote last week and of course it means that there's a, a very large number of people who didn't participate in that exit poll so when it's 35 to 22 there are a lot of people who stayed at home and there's no way of knowing exactly how many of them uh, may have been Fianna Fáil voters so Michal won't be breaking too much of a sweat at that uh, but at the same time I think he would rather uh, like to perhaps wait over until the new year because nobody likes to, the idea of having to, to go to the doorsteps this side of Christmas I don't Okay think. just very briefly and uh, to conclude if we can Gavin, uh, will there be any panic over what Sergeant Morris McCabe might say now that he can talk as he retires today? I, I don't suspect so. I, I think that in general, uh, although he has been obviously constrained from a lot of public commentary, um, the fact that that Morris McCabe has uh, you know been a participant in in a book that's been written by uh, Michael Clifford, and that in fact he's already had get, got to have his say at a tribunal, means that there probably isn't necessarily a huge amount that he's been um, holding back. But certainly, I suppose most people inside Leinster House would would wonder uh, what else exactly Morris McCabe could have done. I mean, after such a tribunal, and he's been out on sick leave for so long, and and, and he's become Mm. such an accidental national celebrity it would be very difficult to imagine him going back to the regular course of duty and being able to go and prosecute crimes and go and show up at a local court for you know, um, uh, motoring offences or anything of the like it would be very difficult to go back to with the greatest respect to the work that they do, what people would, would perceive as the some of the, the mundanities of, of regular police life. So it probably makes an awful lot of sense that Morris McKay might decide that um, his work is done and that, uh, you know, he's just become such a national figure now that it will be very difficult for him to, to pursue regular duties. So a lot of people would think that perhaps maybe it is the, the, the dignified thing to do now that he's had uh, vindication by a national forum, which cannot be trumped. A tribunal is the highest form of public inquiry. It has come down on his side. And after 12 years of campaign, I suppose that's that's the the greatest vindication he could have so I suppose there's probably a general sense that maybe now is the right time to to step off the stage with his reputation intact and his head held high Gavin thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning Gavin Riley, political correspondent with Virgin Media News and political columnist with the Meath Chronicle A dispute over trade union membership recognition is uh, to lead uh, to staff in the ambulance services uh, putting in place a ban on overtime. Now, that's uh, in a a week or so from the 7th of uh, November. uh, And it's part of an ongoing campaign of industrial action with no sign of uh, resolution. Brendan Flynn is branch officer of the PNA personal branch, NASRA, that's the National Ambulance Service Representative Association. And Brendan, you're to take your protest uh, to the department uh, tomorrow uh, in advance of this overtime ban. Good morning, Michael. Uh, thank you for having me on. I'm a committee member of the uh, of the NASRA branch of the TNA. And yes, we'll be having a protest tomorrow uh, from half 12 uh, outside of those offices. Right, uh, but uh, there has been no engagement with you since uh, this industrial action uh, began uh, on the 10th of October, I think it was. That's correct. Um, no, there's been no engagement at all, and we can't understand why. Um, our, the the PNA uh, are widely recognised within the uh, within the HSC, and the ambulance service is just uh, a part of the HSC. And as HSC mm. employees, we can't understand why they won't engage with us, why we're being treated differently. And the PNA uh, is the Psychiatric uh, Nurses Association. It is indeed, yes. Right, uh, and NASRA is a, a branch of the PNA. It is, yeah. We're, we're, we're a branch of the PNA and have been uh, for several years and have operated uh, within the ambulance service for several years. Um, and they've 
They've refused uh, to recognise our right to negotiate or to represent our members. And as I say, we can't understand why we're being treated differently to other HSE staff. Uh, and they've given no, uh, no rational explanation as to why they're, uh, they're treating us differently to other staff. Right, uh, but uh, the HSE does uh, negotiate uh, with members through the SIPTU trade union. Uh, they do, and they, they, they also deal with the impact trade union. Uh, and, but they widely deal with trade unions, but they just for some reason are refusing to deal with our uh, trade union. Uh, and not throughout the wider HSE, just in the ambulance service. And I'll say it's, it's hard to understand. We don't understand it. And uh, last October, up, up until October, uh, they had been taking our subscriptions uh, and dealing with us as they would any other uh, trade union subscriptions. But they singled out uh, P&A members within the ambulance service uh, for special treatment and they discontinued uh, accepting new, uh, new application forms uh, from members within the ambulance service. And then more recently, they've, uh, they've discontinued uh, all uh, subscriptions from all, all of our members. They've just stopped taking them. Right. Uh, and that's 500 members of the ambulance service or thereabouts. Yes. Right. So, uh, an overtime ban in a service that's heavy, heavily reliant on overtime. Uh, what's that going to mean? Well, unfortunately, uh, there are already gaps within the service, uh, as it's it's difficult to cover shifts in, in some areas, uh, and that will uh, only be accelerated uh, by this action. Unfortunately, as I say, we we've we've done everything reasonably possible to avoid impacting on uh, on patients. Uh, or on the service that we provide. The last thing that we want to do is engage in any kind of industrial action. I say this, this industrial action is really unnecessary. All we're asking them to do is to speak to us and treat us as they would any other trade mm. union. But what, what, what will it mean to the public service Will uh, calls go unresponded to? Well, uh, no, no, I'd imagine calls would be responded to. I just, I would imagine that the response times will be, uh, won't be as good as they have been in the past. Uh, it's hard to know what impact it will have uh, until it's actually in place. Uh, it sounds dangerous, it. doesn't it? Look, it's... It, it, We've been we've been backed into a corner here. Um, we we don't want to take this action. Mm. And I appreciate that, but it does sound dangerous, doesn't it? Well, certainly it's going to cause gaps within the service. Yes, uh, and unfortunately, there's no way around that. Uh, we, we've we've tried every other avenue uh, to get them to engage with us, and uh, they just point blank refuse. Okay, well, there's a, a week to resolve this, uh, a little over a week to resolve it, uh, and uh, you'll be taking your protest uh, to the HSE tomorrow, as I said at the outset. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Brendan. Uh, thank, you. thank you for having me. Thank you indeed. Brendan Flynn, branch officer of the PNA, personal branch of NASRA. That's the National Ambulance Service Representative Association. Now, Wednesday morning, the local newspapers are in your shops, uh, as you probably have noticed if you've been out and about uh, this morning. Maggie McGuire has them here in front of her, and uh, you're going to tell us what's on the front pages. Yeah, well, I'll start off with the Drawed Independent and excuse the rustling of the newspapers, as you say, they are mm. in front of me. Um, but uh, a recent RD area meeting has heard concerns for public safety over a stretch of road at Salter, in the Salterstown area that is um, threatening to fall into the sea. Uh, the issue was raised at the council, at the council meeting by Co- Councillor Colin Markey. And basically what he's saying is that he, it's constantly been brought to his attention that we've already seen a situation where three cars have come off the edge of the road and have had to be towed to safety. So um, the problem is obviously being caused by coastal erosion but um, uh, there's a huge concern among locals living in the area about what will happen if the problem isn't fixed and a uh, council official at 
the meeting told the councillors that they had sought funding to fix the situation, yeah. but that none's available. So they're looking at um, exploring alternatives to address the problem. Okay. Which uh, seems a bit mad to think that a road is disappearing and there can't be funding available to fix it. But that, that seems appears to be, to be the situation, situation. as you, you say. Uh, Garda districts also covered in uh, the Drawed Independent this week. Absolutely. Um, a meeting took place uh, between local councillors and Superintendent Fergus Dwyer and a lot of the councillors there expressed concerns about the issue of um, the the Garda districts and the fact that a lot of people living in rural areas feel a sense of isolation because when they have to contact local Garda, one of the main things they're asked is what area you're living in and kind Mm. of that dictates which Garda station they're sent to. So if somebody living in RD and they've been sent to a Garda station in Mead for reference with any queries that they have and obviously this is a problem because people are concerned about um, how long it will take guards to get to them etc etc um, so, uh, Superintendent Dwyer kind of recognised the fact that this is a big issue for people and he told the councillors that he would agree with them in, in a lot of a lot of it basically and he had very strong words to say on the subject himself he was saying that he detested the, the debate over what area a person is from in terms of how they get dealt with and he's saying that their priority must be to protect life and property first and sort out the district afterwards so it's obviously something that Gardaí feel very strongly about themselves so I think he, he may have reassured councillors a little bit in some of what he was saying you know? Okay, well let's hope so uh, Much coverage in the Argus uh, following on uh, from uh, that hit and run in RD over the weekend Absolutely mm. and as Sergeant uh, Farley spoke with us about it on the programme yesterday as well, the Argus is leading with detail of the hit and run incident in RD on Sunday morning. Obviously it left uh, three people injured. It's a massively worrying incident and they're making an appeal for anyone with information to come forward as soon as possible. Okay, and uh, also space given to that puppy farm story that we heard about. Oh yeah, we, we mm. spoke with Fiona ourselves on the show on it and it would break your heart to be honest with you to see the pictures of the puppies, you know me and dogs Michael so mm. I, I w- it would be something that would be annoying for me but um, in the article in the Argus when Fiona spoke to them, um, she outlined horrific conditions basically that the puppies and dogs were kept in and I think she even said when she was on with us that in her 14 years of doing the job as an inspector it was one of the most horrific and mm. harrowing incidents she's had to go to so I mean you can only imagine what the puppies were put through but I do think it kind of finishes up on a positive note in that they are hopeful that they'll be able to find suitable homes for the majority of the dogs so that's mm. a happy note to finish yeah, on you know? happy puppy dog story happy puppy dog yeah, story yeah, right, yeah. focus on the Democrat then uh, on not such a happy story the loss of 180 jobs or thereabouts yeah absolutely there's extensive coverage um, in in both papers from Dun- um, from Dundalk about the work being done to support the workers affected by the authentic food company closure um, and it goes into detail about a meeting that took place between workers and officials from the Department of Employment and Social Affairs. Um, you know, Brendan Ogle from Unite has expressed concerns about uh, how the, the closure will impact on workers going forward and whether they'll be able to get their P45s. And the department seemed to be taking steps to kind of address concerns from workers as soon as possible. They issued a statement last week outlining their commitment to provide support and training and education. So, I mean, there seems to be a little bit of hope there for workers in that respect that they have the backing of the department. Indeed, and uh, a lot of concern in the town about that. There's a lot of excitement in the town as well. a lot of excitement. Mm. It would be impossible for us to review the papers um, from Dundalk without mentioning the coverage that there is of uh, cup final fever that's hitting the town at the minute, and it's obviously in advance of Sunday's uh, cup final clash with Cork City and the Aviva. So there are a lot of articles and coverage 
Um, and both publications shown the level of support for the town. I mean, I think the town is awash with black and white at the moment. So it's nice to see. And, mm. you know, it is obviously a massive boost for the town, a morale boost, I suppose, for the town at a time that's, where it's just been hit by, you know, job losses and stuff like that. So I suppose a little bit of happiness is always good oh, to have, yeah. you know. It goes a long way. This All right, uh, we'll uh, go to me. The, the Chronicle is uh, focusing on the local impact of uh, the waiting times in hospitals. Absolutely. Their front page story is, is telling us that over 6,000 people are waiting on outpatient appointments at Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. That's according to statistics that were um, revealed this week. And, you know, in the article, it goes on to say the Fianna Fáil TD Shane Castles has called on Minister Simon Harris to outline what course of action he plans on taking to address the problem at the at the hospital in Navan and at other hospitals around the country, saying it obviously can't continue, that it's three time three times the mm. average. So, you know, it's something that needs to be tackled as, as soon as possible. OK, a lot of people in uh, Mead as well, particularly in East Mead, uh, wondering uh, about what line of action will be taken uh, in relation to schools, but hoping that there won't be any action needed. Well, this mm. is it. I mean, there's a lot of parents at home now in the midterm wondering how they're going to have schools to send their kids to on Monday morning, mm. I suppose. Yeah. So there's an anxious await for... Uh, I think it's over two and a half thousand parents are going to, or pupils are going to be affected in our local area yeah. in Mead. So they're waiting to see what the situation is and what the outcome of the inspection reports will be. So I guess they'll know um, later this week or I think it's later this week, isn't it? They're going to know. Well, uh, there has been a, a delay uh, because uh, they're saying that the initial investigations, uh, I think, may not be uh, enough uh, because yeah. it, it seemed to be a situation of whether the out side wall was connected to the interior wall but now uh, as I understand it uh, that may be the case but in part in some schools uh, and not altogether so they're uh, delaying uh, the announcement uh, it was uh, to be made yesterday by close of business yesterday uh, but a lot of uh, those announcements have been delayed uh, there's uh, the three schools in Ashburn and the school in Rathoth that are, are still uh, in question uh, the uh, Gale Skull and Dunboyne will open on Monday morning uh, but uh, we just have to wait uh, and see what happens uh, and uh, what uh, the technical assessment is. Absolutely so there's a lot of anxious parents out there I of think, course, yeah. I think the kids are probably yeah. not that bothered <laughs> to be honest possibly <laughs> not, not that bothered but yeah, so that's it that's my round up alright yeah week, well so. let's hope uh, the kids aren't bothered and uh, in prefab somewhere else uh, oh, because yeah, uh, you know there may be contingency arrangements alright we leave it there and uh, thanks uh, for that some interesting stories on uh, the front pages of uh, the local papers. You're welcome to comment on them, by the way, as well, because Maggie will be back again in a few moments' time with some of uh, the comments that do come to us uh, this morning, whether it's uh, the stories from the local papers that you've been hearing about, something else that you've been listening to, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us on the programme. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958. President Donald Trump has been told he isn't wanted in Pittsburgh in an open letter signed by more than 43,000 people until he fully denounces white nationalism. One of uh, the 11 victims' families have declined to, to meet with uh, the president because of comments he made suggesting uh, that there should have been armed guards in the synagogue to prevent the type of uh, atrocity that left 11 families mourning the loss of of loved ones. So we're joined by Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway and political columnist with the journal.ie. Larry, there's always talk about American gun control when one of these horrible incidents occurs and lives are lost in the way that they are. Donald Trump seems to be 
said to be responsible by a lot of people for the uh, very lax laws that are in America. But surely it's uh, the view of the American people in general that this should be the case. Well, no, actually it's not. If you look, Michael, at the uh, opinion poll after opinion poll, they reveal that the majority of the American people would be willing to accept uh, more restrictions on gun ownership. The issue is, however, uh, that Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. is, uh, to put it one way, NRA-occupied territory. The National Rifle Association, because it has so much money, uh, is able to exert considerable uh, and disproportionate influence over the making uh, of gun laws, both at the federal and the state levels. So while you have a people who would take, um, who would willingly take more restrictive gun control laws, you have politicians who refuse to enact them because they're dead scared uh, of the power of the National Rifle Association. And in a modern context, you especially have Republican politicians who are very scared about facing right-wing primaries from the right-wing of their party uh, if they don't, uh, I suppose, oppose every gun control measure that's put on offer. Right. Uh, And why is that the case? Does it come down to the profit uh, that uh, is there from the sale of these guns? Yeah, I think that that's that's a big part of it. Obviously, the the gun manufacturers make a tremendous amount of money, and it's in their their interest to make to have these guns as as readily available for sale uh, as is possible. The NRA also itself has moved from the point of you know thirty years ago, it was actually kind of a rational sports persons organization advocating for the rights of hunters, etc. It's now morphed into a very very radical group that opposes every uh, possible reasonable restriction on gun ownership, uh, and as as a result, and because of the role of money in American politics, it's able to do so. Uh, and then, as a result, as you say in the intro, uh, we have mass shooting after mass shooting after mass shooting. And at this stage, uh, hardly anybody blinks an eye. It might dominate the headlines for a day or two, and then everyone forgets about it. Right, and that's the point uh, that was being made in uh, Pittsburgh, uh, I think, uh, and uh, one of the criticisms of Donald Trump in the run-up to this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that uh, you know, P- Pittsburgh itself is is a really horrific incident, and you know, uh, the list of people killed is chilling to read those names. The one I suppose really has stuck with me uh, is that of the 97 year old woman who I believe was a, a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, for her to meet uh, her end in this fashion while she's worshiping, uh, I just can't think of anything worse. Uh, and this guy, I mean, you know, it just shows that hate uh, still thrives in certain corners of the United States, uh, and it should be said, uh, and I'm not trying to absolve President Trump of responsibility for coarsening the political rhetoric or creating a climate where uh, these kinds of things can happen, but that having been said, the person who undertook this shooting uh, was an opponent of President Trump. He didn't like Donald Trump at all. He said he was a globalist, uh, didn't go nearly far enough for this guy. So I think that some of the, to, to link President Trump directly to this instance, I think is probably uh, a step too far, especially considering uh, that President Trump himself has a Jewish son-in-law, his daughter is a Jew, and he has Jewish grandchildren. Yeah, and uh, would uh, see Israel as a, a great ally. He would, he would, yeah. No. And vice versa. Yeah, and but but that all having been said, uh, you know, if you look back to the 2016 campaign, uh, there's no question that Trump manipulated to a certain degree uh, some of the anti-Semitic and some of the racist sentiment uh, that does exist in the United States. He did manipulate it. He did stoke up uh, a particular climate in the United States. But that having been said, uh, I think we need to realize that, unfortunately, horrible mass shootings like this motivated by homophobia or racism or anti-Semitism 
terrorism. They've been going on tragically for decades in the United States now. All right. Uh, migration, uh, a big issue at the moment in America. And uh, the midterm elections uh, said to be part of the motivation for clamping down on migrants getting into the United States. Yeah, I mean, we have a really unfortunate uh, set of circumstances that seem to be coming down the pipeline. Uh, the president has, has marshaled together some 5,000 uh, active service military personnel who are going to get down to the border uh, and confront this, these caravans that appear to be making their way uh, to the United States. Uh, one would hope that some sort of diplomatic solution or something might be found. And we're hearing things like Mexico might be prepared to offer these people, most of whom hail from Central America. Uh, Mexico might be prepared to offer them amnesty and sanctuary. Uh, We hear that Trump is talking about building all sorts of tent cities uh, in Texas to accommodate them. We can only hope that some sort of solution is found to this that doesn't involve uh, the threat of of violence or of people losing their lives. And when you hear uh, thousands of military personnel who will be armed to the teeth, when you hear of them going to the border, uh, obviously people are going to worry about what might happen. Uh, And as you say, it's 5,000 soldiers that are going to the border, and that compares to 2,000 in Syria. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty extraordinary. And again, uh, I think that Trump has calculated uh, that this, as pe- and this will all be happening, happening as people do early voting and as people go to the polls uh, on Tuesday, uh, Trump has calculated that this is a good way to rile up his base uh, and to get the people in so-called middle America to go out and vote for Republican candidates uh, who are seeking election or seeking re-election to Congress or to the Senate. Uh, I'm just not so sure that this is the most effective uh, recipe for that. While there are uh, anti-immigrant sentiments among Trump voters in particular, uh, most of the polling data suggests that immigration isn't uh, at the top of their list when they go to vote. What ultimately is at the top of their list is what is typically at the top of everyone's list, and that is mm. how much money they have in their pocket. He's also been talking about non-citizens and immigrants who are in the country illegally, and he said that anybody can come to a- America, have a baby, and then that baby ends up being a citizen of the United States, the only country in the world where that can happen. It's ridiculous and it has to end. And he has said he will end it, uh, which is of concern uh, for the illegal Irish. It is, of course. And, you know, what made me think of just a brief aside, Michael, is it made me think uh, of my many uh, friends who are Trump supporters, yet who were born to two Irish citizens in the United States. Uh, This proposal from the the president uh, hits them pretty close to the bone, one would think. Uh, That all having been said, uh, and again, Trump's rhetoric really reeks of trying to rally his base. Trump cannot do this. He plainly cannot do this. I don't know which lawyer told him he could, but he cannot do this because the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment says specifically in very plain and unambiguous language, all people born in the U.S. are citizens of the U.S. I do not know how or what type of lawyering could get around that plain language, uh, but evidently Trump seems to have found someone who thinks that he or she can. Okay, and we'll leave it on that note. Larry, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer with NUI Galway, is a political columnist with the journal.ie. 
Now let's find out what you've been uh, saying to us. Maggie McGuire joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have uh, come to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Maggie. Good morning again, Michael. Much on the phones this morning? Yeah, it's been very busy, actually. Um, all morning, both myself and Ross have been busy taking calls and comments from people, so it's, it's great that people are making the effort to get in touch. Um, we've had a lot of reaction to your initial piece with Gavin Riley um, in relation to the confidence and supply talks. Um, I think news of the talks has um, wound a few people up this morning, to be honest. Oh. Um, and is saying that the two teams from Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil can talk and talk until the cows come home. At the end of the day, nothing will change for the squeezed middle. These parties will work out an agreement just like the last one that only benefits those on large salaries or the high earners. And she says the ordinary Joe Soap will be left behind to fend for ourselves as usual. Okay, well, that may or may not be the case as well. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. don't know what's going to happen uh, yet, really, mm-hmm, do we? Mm-hmm. Um, in relation to that, again, we had a call in from Fran. He is saying that um, Fianna Fáil are hanging on to Fianna Gael because there's no hope of them getting in again as a national party. Um, this is the party that mm. bankrupted the country instead of burning the unsecured bondholders. So we should learn our lessons and keep them out. <laughs> okay, what I take is uh, that neither of the callers are supporters of Fianna Fáil anyway, or, or possibly both. Absolutely, mm, yeah. Yeah. I didn't mm-hmm. get that impression yeah, yeah, right yeah, after yeah. talking to them. Yeah. Um, Mike was in touch, or sorry, Jack was in touch from Cullen to say that um, you know these political polls show how wrong um, it, it can be called on occasion. There was a, a big vote, he says there's a big vote out there for people to tell the truth and stick to it, and he gave the example of Peter Casey. He's saying that the poll showed him at 3%, but he finished at 23% because people liked what he had to say. Mm. It so, would seem to be the case. Yeah, that's it, mm. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit of a surprise for everybody, really, yeah. wasn't it? We'll be talking uh, with uh, Pavi Point a, a little bit later on uh, about what he did have to say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in relation to your piece um, on the Nazareth situation, um, Marie said it's a shame to think that ambulance staff have been forced to protest to some of the hardest working people in the whole country. She wonders what is wrong with us as a nation if we can't even look after the people who look after us. Okay. Uh, well, I wonder indeed if that uh, will go ahead. Undoubtedly, it'll have uh, a significant impact if uh, there is a ban on overtime because, as I understand it, the ambulance service does rely fairly heavily on overtime in order to provide the service. Uh, but let's uh, go to Navin and uh, a fine that has uh, been handed down uh, to the proprietor of a local hair saloon. Uh, €6,000 and costs of €850. Uh, we're joined uh, by uh, Sinead Burke, who's a local Sinn Féin councillor. Good morning, Sinead. Uh, this is uh, because of illegal dumping or because uh, rubbish was given to somebody who dumped it illegally, more accurately put, perhaps. Yes, yeah, and a, and a huge expensive lesson for somebody to learn. Um, basically, th- th- this comes um, as part of, this was a result of Mead County Council's new um, campaign targeting these man with a van initiatives. Um, you can see it um, predominantly advertised over social media, Michael, yeah. um, where people are advertising um, uh, getting rid of some waste, getting rid of waste at a really knockdown price. And unfortunately, some people are availing of this, thinking that, you know, this is a bargain. It's not a bargain, as um, this case proves completely. It's a very expensive lesson to be learning instead. Um, Mead County Council, people will notice around the county they have billboards up at the moment. And also, I think there's an advertising campaign currently being run on LMFM as well. Uh, warning people of not to avail of these services. You know, it looks like a bargain. It's really not. It's going to cost you a lot of money in fines in the long run. You should celebrate yourself every day. 
But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Run. Um, and the publicity from uh, this uh, verdict uh, will undoubtedly come as a, a warning to many. Uh, and the council says it, it hopes it, it sends out that message and very clearly to all of us. Uh, it's hard not to feel some sympathy with Lisa Curtis, uh, who uh, is uh, the owner of the Esme Hair and Beauty Salon uh, on the Kennedy Road, uh, because uh, she didn't dump this stuff. Uh, she was refurbishing her premises, as I understand it from Paul Murphy's article in the paper today, uh, and had someone take the rubbish uh, away. Now, that could be done quite innocently, of course. Uh, absolutely. And uh, you know what? I, I'm, not going to, mm. I'm not going to speak about Miss Curtis um, particularly, but what I would say is that if you avail, if anybody avails of these man with a van initiatives and it proves that they're illegal operators, ultimately the customer will be paying the price, mm. um, not the person who's actually doing the dumping. So just to be, I was, I'm always conscious that to give out good, helpful information to people. So this morning, if you can take away anything from our conversation, Michael, mm. if anybody is thinking of availing of what they think is a bargain in this area, Ask the operator, do they have a waste permit? If they do have a waste permit, it should be displayed actually on the van itself. If you have suspicions, even though you see a waste permit and still things maybe aren't adding up, take a note of the number of the permit and you can check the validity of that permit either online or with Meath County Council. Um, so that's unfortunately is a lesson learned but hopefully the message will go out to other people that that's just a really practical and easy step that you can take and there really is a, a clamp down on this isn't there because uh, the councillor are looking for people to give them information and uh, when they hear from people well then uh, they're looking to see if there is a problem they're using drones and cameras and that sort of thing to, to survey the area where the complaints are being made yeah and you know what this really came into sharp focus over the over the summer with the hot weather because unfortunately we had those forest fires and they were exacerbated by illegal dumping. So, I mean, it, it proves the case that, you know, nobody's a winner here when you start this carry-on. First of all, you're polluting our countryside. You're jeopardising our tourism. You're um, interfering with the natural flora and fauna of the area. 
it's unsightly and it's dangerous mm. as well, you know. So there's no winners here. And I have to say, the reports of people um, contacting the council, reporting either approaches made by these Man With A Van initiatives or actually people who have witnessed illegal dumping has gone up an awful lot over the last couple of months. And there's, I'm, I'm sorry to say, mm. in some respects, there's a lot more prosecutions pending at the moment. Um, well, not too surprising, really, because uh, we do know that it upsets people from the feedback that we get to the programme when people ring in, they say they saw a mattress somewhere or a pile of rubbish or some tyres or whatever the thing is uh, in quite often scenic areas. Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing more annoying. You mm. know, I mean, we've all been, you know, you're out with the kids for a walk on a lovely day or something and you turn a corner in a forest and there you're faced with, you know, umpteen refuge bags and, as you say, an old mattress or something. Mm. I mean, it's disgusting, to yeah. be honest with you. Uh, and um, often scenic areas because they're the isolated areas. Exactly, uh, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. So you have forests, you have bogs, you have... Um, dunes along the beach you know it's the places you go for a nice piece of uh, peace and quiet and a bit of a relax and then you turn a corner and there's a pile of mattresses okay many thanks for that Sinead Burke Sinn Féin councillor in Navan now let's uh, return to some more of your thoughts Maggie you have some more calls there yes I do have some more comments to to bring to you but just first I'll actually bring an announcement for motorists uh, uh, who are listening to the programme and they're being advised that there's been a two car collision near the test centre on the Drogheda Leak Road, that efforts are underway to clear the scene and drivers are being urged to approach the scene with caution. Okay. Um, going back to the comment line, um, we had a call in from Mike who's saying that the Fine Gael Fianna Fáil talks are a waste of time from the people's point of view. They'll make um, the parties involved to make decisions to feather the nest of the rich and the powerful in the country and they'll ignore the people who really need their help it would make My you God. sick he says mm. there's a real cynical attitude towards yeah, uh, the talks they're I trying to uh, keep uh, a stable government in place I don't know mm. I think maybe people just have a political overload after the last mm. couple of months maybe with the election and stuff yeah, like that people yeah. just need mm. a bit of a breather you know it's okay, Halloween people yeah. so I suppose that's what they're thinking and staying on that note actually um, Mary is saying that the thought of Fianna Gael and Fianna, Fa- Fianna Fáil wasting time working out the details of their political relationship as she puts it um, makes her angry beyond belief it was really? Su- yeah. My God. Uh, yeah. She's saying yeah. it would suit them much better to use that time uh, to work on the real problems facing the country like the crisis in our health system and the ongoing homeless problem. Well I think if you were to talk to the parties that's exactly what they are doing uh, and that they're trying to look at some of uh, the big issues uh, it's, uh, I think the three issues they say that are dominating these talks are health, housing and broadband. Yeah, that's mm, true. But mm. I, I don't know. It just seems to be that people are angry on the phone yeah. today. I don't know what it is. Maybe okay. they get up out of bed the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But uh, The full moon at Halloween. This is it. Yeah, yeah that, mm. that does tend to affect things all right. Okay. And um, we had Claire on the line in relation to your piece with Larry Donnelly on, on Donald Trump. Um, she's saying they're hearing all this stuff about Trump and now with the election of Brazil's new far-right president, she wonders, are we entering into another age of fascism and totalitarianism? Okay, this is the word. Okay, you know the word I'm going yeah, to say. You go. That's it. Yeah. You go with it. Yeah. And in the same note, uh, Siobhan is saying she's sick and tired of hearing about Trump. Uh, she wonders how Americans could give um, such a, a bigoted man, her words, uh, the highest office in the United States. She said it's just beyond belief. It's okay. 
Interesting stuff. And um, just to finish up, because I know mm-hmm. time is against us, Charlie from Navin, a regular caller to the programme, mm. was on to us. Um, he just rang in to say, as we all know, it's Halloween night, and she, he was calling on people uh, to be aware of elderly people or those living on their own in estates. Um, yeah. He was just saying if people would check in on them and make sure they're mm. okay and have respect for them with regard to like yeah. the letting off mm. of fireworks and Absolutely. bonfires and stuff like that. Well done, Charlie, for reminding us. I'm sure we all know uh, about the noise, how it can impact on animals and so forth, how it, it can really be more than a disturbance for elderly people and people on their own uh, and how there's the dangers of uh, the fires and indeed uh, the danger of uh, some of the costumes uh, that children might be wearing and how flammable they can be. Uh, But uh, thanks as I say Charlie for reminding us and hopefully uh, that will all make us focus on all of that this evening. Now we're going to talk uh, about a ban on single use plastic. Uh, This has uh, been voted on in uh, the European Parliament and uh, the Vice President President of uh, the Parliament and local MEP Mairead McGuinness joins us. Uh, when we talk about single-use plastic, mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about straws and yeah, plastic uh, cups and knives and forks. and drinking out drink- of a single-use yeah, plastic yeah, cup yeah. this morning. It's all of those mm. things that make life very convenient, I suppose, mm. and that up to now, I think up until recently, we used them and we didn't think about them. Mm. And then people started researching the quantity and volumes of these single-use plastics that just end up in the oceans. And I think that's where everybody is now aware from uh, nature programs um, that really this plastic doesn't disappear Uh, and in fact it's not being handled properly and you know that up until January of this year China was taking all our waste or 95% of Irish plastic waste was going to China and they stopped they said no we're not taking your waste anymore Um, so I think a lot of things came together and at EU level the commission uh, proposed this ban on on single use plastics it's not coming in immediately Mm. because obviously there needs to be a transition um, but it will require a significant change in our own behaviour around plastics now having said that there is a place for plastic medical devices you know even uh, food uh, packaging some of it is required in order to keep things fresh but but there's also an absolute realisation that the planet cannot continue to produce and dump mm. plastic the way we're doing it up to now. And this is the top 10 items uh, that end up in oceans. Uh, yeah, that and like the list is plastic cutlery, mm. plastic plates, cotton buds, which mm. really struck me. I hadn't thought about those straws mm. you mentioned, mm. um, balloon sticks. Um, you know, the plastic mm. cups we've just mentioned. I mean, all of those things that are small, in, in you know, they're not big, big products, mm. but I suppose they're used so frequently. There's such a volume of them. And I mean, I'm guilty as well. I, I often think when I'm on a plane and I fly twice a week, most weeks, and I get a cup of tea, mm. it comes with a plastic bag that I can put the plastic rubbish in, which is the plastic spoon, the knife, the plastic container for the milk and all that goes with it and every time I do that I'm more conscious of it now. I'm not so sure that we're going to have um, replacements for all of those products. So we do have to think strategically. Yes, reduce those where we immediately know there are alternatives or where they're not necessary at all and um, what's good about the EU um, decision and our vote last week is that I think all member states now want to come to this place because mm. there's a realisation the environmental lobby have been talking about it for a long time but I think consumers generally I'm sure your mm. listeners are very you know keen to know what's happening to plastic and that something should be done about it Yeah well uh, I suppose uh, a lot of it uh, would seem unnecessary uh, but there are 
industry considerations. Now, the Minister has said, he's delighted really, that the European Parliament has voted in favour of this. He's to meet with his European counterparts, I think, next Monday uh, and then on the 9th of November they'll try to work out a a plan for implementing this and they hope to do it by the end of the year. Uh, But why is the Minister so happy about this law being enforced on the Irish people by the European Parliament when he had the opportunity to do it himself? Well, it's not been forced, first of all, because the European Parliament is made up of, mem- of mm. members from all member states. Um, so it's agreed. Mm. It's also agreed at council level, which is where the Minister would sit. I think he welcomed it because it's something that he knows needs to be done himself and he is the new well, Minister. Well, he doesn't really. Well, he's the new Minister. I know. And, I, that's, you know, and, very that's, recent and that's the and point he new. made when the Green Party brought forward their yeah, bill. The he said, I'm the new minister. Yeah. I've only been in office a week. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll review. I'll, I'll commission a review. Uh, it's yeah. a little bit like establishing a committee. Uh, he doesn't mean it. In other well, words. I, d- I disagree. I mean, he is a very new minister, mm. but a very committed minister with a lot of experience. He is listening to not only the lobbies around plastic, which are the environmental lobby, but his own constituents are talking about plastics everywhere. People speak to me about it all the Mm. time. And I think what we need to do is make sure that when we bring in something that it will be effective. Because up to now we're recycling. I mean, I, I have this, you know, think that, oh God, I'm doing the right thing. I recycle. But actually when I ask where does the plastic go, where does it end up? I have not been able to get an answer. So I think even those of us who feel we're doing the right thing by recycling and separating and all Mm. of this, um, and we leave it in a centre, we're actually not sure where it's going. And I think that's why this single-use plastic ban, which will come in, I think, 2021, earlier if possible, but at least 2021, it gives time for industry to adjust. For example, my Italian colleagues were furious. They Mm. voted against this. They have a very big industry that produces these products. So naturally enough, they're looking at jobs. But apart from the jobs end of it, we are required under this big sustainable development goals, which are the overarching global issue Mm. around how we're going to have a sustainable climate and, and environment, to address issues of overuse of natural resources, of waste and recycling. So I would give um, Minister a a bit of time. I believe he will do uh, and follow and work with his European counterparts to bring in this ban. Mm. And Repack are also very involved as well. I mean, we did it ages ago with the plastic bag. But but, but is he not talking out of both sides of his mouth in that he's saying he will bring in the European ban uh, and he might or might not bring in the ban proposed in Ireland? Oh, he will. Uh, no, but but I think it's very clear that it's not a European ban because he'll be one of the ministers agreeing. To yes. This. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So once he but as you say, he will agree. It, he will agree he to will it, and he it. might or might not agree, if you like, to the Irish ban I that know. was proposed by the Green Party. Uh, well, I mean, let's separate the two issues here. But they uh, are I think the, same the Green thing, Party, to be fair, have pushed hard on this, and they'd like it to happen sooner. And they have a particular way they'd like to see it done. I think what's happening is that the minister is working with his counterparts, the other environment ministers around the table. And it is a European initiative that member states will implement. So I don't think think there's a conflict there. Um, I think it's no harm that there's pressure put on the minister and we're all doing that. And I think the very fact that he came out and welcomed this is very clear that he intends to take action on it. He has to. I think Mm. we all know that. When you look at um, the David Attenborough documentaries, Mm. um, and I mean, I've travelled a bit myself and sometimes when I'm far away from Europe and I see the flotsam and jets some of plastic um, literally clogging up the oceans and then you realise well a lot of that might have come from our very own bins that you realise that the problem that we had in in Europe of our plastics which we were exporting Mm. was creating a problem for other 
uh, countries that have said, actually, we're not taking it anymore. So don't doubt the minister's uh, Mm. commitment to this. Um, As far as I'm concerned, he was a very able minister for education. He took over the environment portfolio because the... the Well, there is no commitment to to it. There's a a, a commitment to the European ban uh, and there's a review of the Irish ban. But, But... I don't think that there are two separate issues here because mm. uh, the European but the, but the response is separate. Sing- I, I disagree, Michael. I think mm. the Euro- it's better to have a European response uh, and that Europe, that all member states do the right thing collectively, mm. because then it doesn't mean you have forum shopping that okay. our plastic could end up okay. elsewhere. Well, 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 one of the so things I, I that really wouldn't yeah. doubt his commitment mm. on well, this. Well, I mean, an environmental minister, whoever that is, uh, will want to do the right thing for the environment, and I think increasingly. Like like I was down in, in South Galway at the weekend in Convara presenting mm. Farming for Nature Awards. Yeah. And, and in that sector, there's a huge requirement. I mean, for example, plastic is used in agriculture. Okay. Um, some of it is supposed to be biodegradable, but we're now discovering that it's not. So mm. every single sector has an issue around plastic that the minister has to address okay, and well, will do it under okay, the Okay, well, let's talk framework. about what the, what the minister is about to commit to and what he is about to negotiate to agree to recycling all plastic bottles by Mm -hmm. 2025. Mm. So why doesn't he just tell local authorities to put the bottle banks back in place? Well, you see, uh, the other thing is... Wouldn't that be a start? Wouldn't that be a very simple approach? Well, I mean, I think it sounds very simple, Michael. Because it is very simple. Everything sounds simple here. I think there's a first step in this. Mm. Let's ask ourselves as citizens, what do we do with our plastic bottle when we're out Well, people used to bring them to the bottle banks and 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 now they don't because the bottle banks don't exist because local authorities across the country have cut back. Well, I would agree that bottle banks were a great idea for those who used them. But I also know from where I live that many people don't and mm. weren't using bottle banks. Sure, many people don't use their throwing, green bin know, and they don't they compost and whatever. So I think the first step yeah. is awareness. I mean, mm. I, I wouldn't disagree with you that we need places where we can bring particularly bottles to. Mm. But, but there are places. I mean, there's a place in RD to bring your um, those glass and bottles and, and plastic too, so I disagree that it's not available. Not plastics. Uh, but as far as I the know, the plastics are gone. I stand the corrected the plastic, the if that is gone. the case. Now, there's, there's the recycling centres, the there's the VW yeah, recycling exactly. centre, and that's where yeah. you can bring them. Yeah. But the bottle banks beside, uh, or the plastic bottle banks beside the bottle banks have gone. Yeah, well, I, I look at that because you're an expert, mm. that you have the detail that I don't. But mm. I think that that, you know, the, the question is a valid one. But I think the issue is also valid that as consumers, we have to take responsibility for what we use and where it ends up. And we have to use our bins if you t- use bins or you go to the recycling centre and use the recycling centre. I do think there's two points on plastic bottles. Um, one is I think we're going to have to reduce the amount of plastic bottles. Even in the Parliament, we were using mm. plastic bottles for drinking. And now there is a real push and rightly so to move away from that and have a, a tap because that's how you used to get water mm. from a tap and have a, a, a reusable cup that you can use. So I think we're going to have to look at that as well. But I think there's a valid argument. If We, we need to make it easier for people to, so that they can recycle. Mm. But I would suggest that there is a cohort of, of people who actually are very committed to recycling and will do and are doing the right mm. thing. I think there are other citizens who aren't fully aware of the damage to the environment, not mm. just from plastic, oh, but from uh, all dumping agreed. of waste. Uh, and that is and their prerogative. And that is their prerogative. And to I, dump? I, well, I don't think it's not, a prerogative not, to dump. Michael. Not to dump, not to be no. committed to recycling. No, no but it's uh, not. And a, I say that as somebody who is committed to recycling. No, I don't think it's your prerogative. Mm. I think if you live in a society mm. where we know there are pressures on our natural environment, that you have a responsibility. And, and very often we talk about rights, but there's mm. a responsibility to make sure that the waste we produce, whether it's um, what comes out of your sewerage system mm. or your plastic bottles 
or your green bins is recycled in an appropriate way. I don't think anyone can opt out of that. I think the problem is people do. And those of us who live in rural areas... You won't get anywhere that way. You need to encourage people to recycle. Uh, But I've already Mm. made that Mm. point. I mean, I think it's it's Mm. a question of let's let's separate these two issues. Mm. You've covered very accurately the amount of dumping that happens Mm. in rural areas. If people find it easy to drive out with rubbish in the boot of their car and dump it behind a gate, surely they would find it just as easy to drive that tiny step further and go to a recycling centre. So it's an element of both. Mm. I think what we need is first of all for people to understand that if you dump, you dump on everybody. Uh, But that those who are doing the right thing, if we need to make it easier for them, and I'll talk to the Minister about the point you've raised with me around plastics because that is an issue. Mm. And if we can make it easier for people and more convenient, let's try and do that. But the objective, the overall objective is to stop plastic going into our oceans because that's ultimately where it ends up. But it's also in our ditches. It's on our streets. Mm. It's absolutely everywhere. Now, the ban on single use will come in. So those products will be gone and then we will focus on the plastic bottles that are... I mean, I, I, I don't know when we started carrying water around with us, but we you, used to do it, but mm. now we do it. And people do want to have a drink of water with them. Mm. As I said, when I walked into your studio, I was very glad to have a drink of water, but it's in yeah. a single-use plastic yeah, cup. Well, like in our house, we use the same bottle over and over. Very good. You yeah, know, yeah. Uh, and there are ways of doing and it. And I bring uh, my own know, cup the yeah, next yeah, time. Please do. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you see, uh, bring, it's so bring, bring, bring your own cup and yeah. on, on your bike because our time, bike, our, our time has bike. run out. I have a bike, well, but I wish I could use it for work, but it okay. won't take me over the seas. Well, I was going to ask you uh, <laughs> if you were going to use it for work uh, because uh, I'm reading this morning that MEPs are to be offered e-scooters, uh, electronic scooters uh, to travel between uh, the Parliament buildings. Uh, no, uh, I won't. You won't have to wear. The only time I get exercise is walking between. I did. 15,000 steps one of the days last week so that was at work mm. as opposed to exercise so no I, I'd be afraid of myself on a, on a scooter I might do harm yeah. that wouldn't <laughs> <Okay>. do <laughs> Alright uh, it's a, an odd environmental issue that uh, is being put forward uh, apparently by the Parliament but thank you indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning that's uh, Fine Gael MEP Mairead McGuinness now, let's uh, reflect on how uh, Peter Casey got 23% of uh, the vote in the presidential election. Martin Collins, co-director of Pave Point Travellers Group and uh, the Romer Centre, joins us now. Good morning to you, Martin, and uh, thanks uh, for morning, joining us. Uh, this uh, relates to some 343,000 people. Are they all anti-traveller, do you think? No, I don't think so. I think it's much more complex than that. But first of all, can I say that uh, we congratulate Michael D. Higgins on his re-election. It's the biggest mandate ever in a presidential election. Uh, so a historical number of people have voted, have voted for Michael D. Higgins. And by voting and ele- electing Michael D. Higgins, people have voted for inclusion, equality, pluralism and respect for diversity. And by rejecting Peter Casey... People have rejected racism, division, bigotry and indeed ageism because they were questioning Michael D. Higgins' age and his capacity to do the job and all of that. So the result, a very resounding Mm. victory for human rights as far as we are concerned. I wonder though, uh, and and I mean I honestly wonder, because he went from 2% to 23% Mm. in the course of a, a week. And I was asking yesterday uh, if uh, the candidates had known that there was a, a race card, if you like, available to them in canvassing for votes, maybe they'd have gone after the blacks and the Jews as well and done it over three or four weeks. Well, 
look, on this occasion, it was, uh, you know, travellers were being targeted uh, by Peter Casey. And, you know, it could be the immigrants next time. It could be black people next time. It could be gay people. I mean, uh, you know, uh, really, no, no one is safe. It's the first time ever, Michael, in a presidential election, as far as I can recollect. And I remember the presidential campaign when Mary Robinson was elected. Mm. I remember the presidential campaign when uh, Mary McAleese was elected and, of course, the incumbent, Michael D. Higgins, uh, seven years ago. And this is the first time I have ever witnessed uh, racism and division and bigotry featuring in a presidential election. I've seen it in local elections. Mm. I've seen it in general elections. But really, uh, it's the first time I've seen it in a presidential election. And it's very unsavory. It's very dangerous. It's mm. reckless. And it's right-wing populism. And yep. Peter Casey and others who engaged in that type of politics know that quite well. And they're doing this in the hope that they can garner some cheap votes. And as I mm. say, it is reckless. It is dangerous. It is divisive. But look, at the people of Ireland, we have a long, proud tradition here of electing good presidents, presidents with dignity and with integrity and with a commitment to inclusion and human rights. And I think the Irish people have shown that again. Well, I asked that question yesterday, Martin, as to mm-hmm. whether candidates uh, might have gone after the blacks and the Jews uh, in terms of trying to gain votes because of how going against the travellers seemed to uh, increase uh, the popularity of one of the candidates. And I kind of got my answer this morning. Uh, The Irish Times is carrying a a story today uh, based on all of the European countries and uh, the attitudes they have towards Muslims and Jews, as uh, the case Mm. may be. Uh, One of the best, uh, this is uh, according to research from Pew Research in Washington, uh, and we're one of the best countries in terms of our attitude. Sixty uh, percent of people would accept Muslims, and seventy percent would accept accept Jews. But that leaves forty percent uh, who may not accept Muslims, and thirty percent who may not accept Jews. Look, let's make no mistake about it: racism, exclusion, uh, bigotry is a problem in Irish society, and it's deeply, deeply rooted. And it's so deeply rooted that it's almost normalised and accepted, particularly in relation to the traveller community. People feel they can say and do things about travellers that they might think twice about in relation to other groups. And racism, whenever it raises its ugly head, it has to be condemned. It has to be challenged. There's no place for that in Irish society. And I really do welcome and I commend the other five presidential candidates for condemning the comments by Peter Casey and disassociating disassociating themselves from it. Also, Taoiseach Leo Brackler also condemning those comments. Uh, so we welcome that. And indeed, many other human rights uh, organisations have heavily criticised uh, Peter uh, Casey's comments. And Fianna Fáil uh, rejecting him to some degree. Uh, councillors in Donegal saying they'd welcome him into the party. Then there's the Renewer Party who want him uh, to lead that party because they agree with him. Well, look, we're very fortunate in an Irish context, unlike many other European countries, Austria, Belgium, France, uh, and so forth, we don't have any uh, out-and-out right-wing fascist uh, parties. And I think it's really important that we don't become complacent and that we continue uh, in our efforts to challenge and to eradicate uh, racism and bigotry whenever it raises its ugly head, as I said a moment ago. Mm. As as I say, the people of Ireland have spoken. Uh, It's a a very substantial, uh, it's the biggest mandate ever in a presidential election for a president who symbolises equality and inclusion and respect for diversity and human rights. And it's a rejection of Peter Casey and his gutter racist politics. Well, we don't have right-wing parties because uh, right-wing politics has never been an issue for people to contend with. 
Uh, the fear here, I think, is that that attitude, when expressed, saw this surge in support for this particular well, 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 candidate, well, and that it might be, pay, but that it might be picked up on by others going into the future. Well, I, I, that's the danger, and I, I think you're absolutely right. That, that, you know, that's the danger, and that's the concern we have that others now, you know, will see that there was a, a bounce in, in his votes, you know, when he came up with anti-travel uh, comments, you know, and it could effectively give a mandate and a license to other, uh, 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 you know, uh, politicians to play the race card. Um, but you know, it's a bit more complex than that. I, I don't believe for one second that you know that, that the 20%, you know. Uh, or sorry, the 23% uh, of people who voted for um, Peter mm. Casey are, are racist. I think it's a lot more complex than that. I think there was a protest vote. I think the I think in the fall, uh, uh, um, um, grassroots people were a little bit aggrieved that Fianna Fáil didn't field a candidate, and some political analysts and commentators have suggested that that Peter Casey may have gotten the, the Fianna Fáil vote. So I, I don't believe for, for one second that the bounce uh, in the number of votes for Peter Casey is solely and exclusively, you know, related to his anti-travel comments. It would be quite easy and quite simplistic for me, Michael, to come on your radio show this morning and say, oh, isn't that terrible? You know, every single person who voted for Peter Casey is a racist. I don't believe that. Right. What do you think of Peter Casey when he says he's not a a racist and that he didn't make anti-traveller comments, that there isn't a racist bone in his body and that he was talking about a particular situation and he wasn't talking Mm -hmm. about all travellers? Well, I think his comments, uh, and most uh, decent-thinking people would agree with me, that his comments were very racist, they were very hurtful, and they caused a lot of pain and insult and offence to my community. Now, you know, Peter Casey went on quite a bit about uh, the ethnic status of travellers. Well, first of all, he's factually incorrect. This government and this state did not pass any law recognising travellers as an ethnic group. It was a symbolic gesture, a symbolic statement by our Dint Taoiseach Enda Kenny on the 1st of March of, uh, uh, of 2017. And it's a very welcome and, it's a, uh, uh, and a very significant uh, development because we've been campaigning for this for centuries. So he's incorrect. There is no law uh, recognising traveller ethnicity. But, you know, I'm not so worried about him contesting travel ethnicity because, you know, you know, from an, anthrop- an anthropological point of view and a sociological point of view, it's, it's just a fact. Travellers constitute a distinct ethnic group. We've won that battle insofar as the, the state now recognises travellers as a distinct ethnic group. So his comments around ethnicity didn't really concern me all that much. But when you read the transcript of the podcast he did with Independent, uh, he goes on to, you know, making generalisations about travellers not paying their taxes or not paying their fair share of taxes. And then he goes on to uh, infer, you know, that settled people are afraid of travellers, uh, afraid of travellers, again making a, generaliz- a generalisation. So I do believe, it. and then he compounded the situation, I don't, I don't know what his motives were, but he compounded the situation by actually going down then to Cabra and Torres to look at the traveller site, mm. and he didn't have any conversation. He never even spoke to a traveller, you know? And I think, you know, and I, I, if, if Peter Casey is listening, I don't know whether he is or not, but certainly I would issue uh, an invitation to Peter Casey here and now that is more than welcome to come in here to Paddy Point, uh, to sit down, have a conversation, have a dialogue with traveller men and women of all ages, and he might leave Pavy Point with a completely different uh, perspective on the travel situation. Yeah, uh, he said what he said a week out uh, from the vote. Uh, had he said it two weeks out from the vote or three weeks out from the vote, uh, might he have fared better? Because uh, the increase 
in his vote was quite incredible. I, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like it, Martin. Well, yes, there was, there certainly there was a bounce uh, in the polls and, and in the number of votes that he received. But again, I would, I would go back to the point. I do not believe for one second that every single person that voted for Peter Casey votes for him on the basis of his, of his anti-traverse sentiment. I don't believe that. I think it's much more complex, much more nuanced. There was a protest vote there as well. You know, he also made some derogatory comments about unemployed people and people on social welfare. So he, he attacked a, a, number, a number of groups in this particular uh, uh, in, instance, you know? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, but, but, again, but, again, but again, I go back. I mean, this was a very decisive and an overwhelming, the biggest mandate ever in a presidential election for Michael D. Higgins. And that sends out a very strong message, uh, you know, which is one of inclusion, uh, respect for diversity and pluralism, and a rejection of ageism, racism, division and bigotry. And that's the substantial point. That's the more important point here this morning. The people of Ireland have spoken, and we know what type of society we want. And it's the one that Michael D. Higgins symbolises, and it's one that he has campaigned for, campaigned for, for over 50 years. Okay. So, so Peter Casey can take his gutter racist politics back to the States. Okay, Martin. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Thank you. Martin Collins, co-director of Pave Point Traveller Group and uh, the Roma Centre. Primary school teachers have uh, rejected uh, proposals uh, to address uh, the two-tier pay system which sees uh, those recruited since 2011 receiving lower pay. Joe Colleen is uh, the president of uh, the INTO and joins us now. What does this mean in effect, Joe? Good morning, listeners. And well put, uh, Michael. You explained it very well there. Teachers who were taken on after 2011, 12, 13, 14 and up to the present day uh, commence teaching at a lower wage. Now, um, efforts have been made in the meantime to narrow the gap, which had been successful. However, the latest talks would introduce equality from those who qualified since 2016. And inexplicably, uh, those who qualified in 2011, 13, 14, and 15 would continue to accrue losses in their wage and inequality in their wage going forward from the date the agreement was signed. Our members have, have, have voted against the agreement because they felt it didn't give full pay equality. It perpetuated the system whereby some teachers are working with colleagues and sitting, uh, working in classrooms and going to the same staff rooms during the day who are on a different wage but are expected to put in exactly the same effort to uh, teach the same number of children and to work under the same conditions of service as their colleagues while still on a, on a lower wage. But equalisation uh, would be uh, more tangible, would it not be, for your members in that the proposal is to skip two pay increments? You see, that's where the difficulty arose with the uh, listeners because for some of the other public service unions, two incremental point increases, in other words, to skipping two steps up, up the salary ladder would give full equality, but in the case of teachers, because the wage was cut uh, some 12 or 13 percent, um, two incremental point increases wouldn't still give full equality. Now, it did for those who qualified from 2016 on, but for those who qualified between, between 2011 and 2016, it didn't give uh, full equality, and would just perpetuate the idea, uh, the system whereby one teacher would be working in a school on a lower wage than all their colleagues are, and the, our members uh, voted not in not to accept that system mm. and to vote solidarity with our our young teachers who are on a lower wage 
and what we what we want really is that full full pay equality would be introduced by the government. Okay, but the difference between the two would be far less. That's the point, is it not? It is, and obviously mm. that's an advantage now as well because the pay offer has been made, which we felt was a significant pay offer, and it does really suit those who qualify from 2016 on. So the cohort who are on a lower wage now is greatly reduced. Um, it's going to take less money to reach an agreement on it, and uh, it will allow the government to concentrate on that cohort who are still on lower wage. Uh, for example, somebody who qualified in 2011 would continue for the rest of their career on a lower wage um, than anybody who qualified in 2016 or thereafter. So what it does is it, 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 um, gives us an opportunity to look at that cohort from 2011 to 2015 2016 and make an effort on their behalf to try and get them up to full pay equality. So what does it mean in effect? Uh, you stand firm and continue to look for full equality, is it? What we want to do now, maybe, is obviously on our CEC, the Executive Committee is meeting next Wednesday, and our executive then will look at the, the overall vote pattern. They will look at the situation as it, as it stands, as, as it is presented to us at the moment, and we will then plot a strategy uh, going forward to see how exactly we're going to achieve this pay equality. Obviously, we will be trying to engage constructively with the government mm. and with other bodies. But you'd be balloting uh, on the prospect of industrial action if uh, the government wasn't willing to cede to your demands. Uh, there is a possibility now because that was part of the motion that was passed. But, but in, in the meantime, I think we just need to look at other options. There may be other ways uh, within which we will be able to reach a situation and an agreement uh, through which we may be able to, to achieve full pay equality. Mm. Uh, do you need to contemplate what support there would be for industrial action if uh, there was to be industrial action, given the climate uh, whereby one of uh, the teachers' unions has uh, accepted these proposals? Uh, the turnout uh, in this vote was only 55%, uh, and the margin was very narrow, 53 to 47%. It was, and oh, that's food for thought, actually, for our central executive commission now. They're going to have to put all the pieces of the puzzle together and they're going to come up with a strategy. They'll have to take all those things into consideration now and come up with a strategy that's going to take us forward constructively. Uh, our ultimate aim is to reach pay equality. That's what we want. We don't want to discommode anybody. We just want to make sure that uh, those who have suffered lower wage for the past seven years and have now said they're not willing to um, accept whatever has been offered, we just have to rep- represent that view and see if there's a constructive way forward towards full pay equalisation. But that's uh, because uh, the trade unions uh, accepted uh, what was given to them uh, and uh, these yellow pack terms uh, that uh, was a fait complete, if you like, uh, when uh, government uh, put it to you that that was the, the change in the circumstances of new entrants. Yes, and I'm glad you said that now. There was an impression that the unions were complicit in the wage cut for our new entrants after 2011. That's, that was quite incorrect. Uh, what has happened is it was introduced unilaterally by the government without any consideration uh, of the unions. The unions were never without any resistance uh, from the unions. I mean, I think that's the point. Uh, and uh, you were complicit in not responding. Uh, we actually did respond now, and we did point out the jeopardy in the situation where young teachers would be taken on on a lower wage. And we've continued to fight the cause for our young teachers. In the last Obviously, two or three years, perhaps, but not seven years ago. 
Well, actually, it did happen seven years ago now, and there's, there, is a, there, is a, there is a media spin that it was the unions that were complicit in allowing this to happen. It was introduced by the government without consultation with the uh, trade It was introduced by the government without, without consultation with the trade unions, and it was a fair complete by the time it was, it was complete. So the unions have, in, in the meantime, continued to, to negotiate with the government to try and get full equality for, the, for our younger cohort of teachers. Um, this latest offer is a reasonable effort, but it's just not good enough. And those who have suffered low wage for the past seven years uh, will just have to be supported and we will, just, we'll, we will have to continue to try and achieve full pay equality for those teachers. OK, and the proposal uh, is being rejected by your members, but as I said, accepted uh, by the TUI. Uh, does your next uh, step in how you respond to this uh, hinge to some degree on the response of the ASTI trade union? No, each one of the trade unions now will work independently of this, even though we do collaborate all the time. So the ASTI members will maybe have a different perspective on this now. They have issues with a HDIP and they have issues with qualifications. Um, so mm. they, vote, they vote maybe swayed one way or the other with that. That's if they, if they do actually go to a vote on this, because an executive may make a decision without actually putting that to a vote. So we, in this situation now, we have the situation as it is. We have an overvote by 53% to 47%. We know what our members want, and we are determined in this stage now to follow a path that constructively will lead us towards full pay equalisation. And how determined? Uh, I mean, in the context of this being an ongoing dispute, uh, at what stage do you hope to bring it to a head? Well, as soon as, as soon as humanely possible. Obviously, we would hope that through a positive and in, constructive engagement with the government that we will be able to get a resolution of it. In the meantime, we are, we are very much aware that lots of our young teachers are being hit hunted by, by um, agencies who supply teachers to RIA to Saudi Arabia, to other uh, countries. And we have a huge shortage of young teachers within the country at the moment. And we feel that this pay equalisation, uh, the lack of pay equalisation, is one of those reasons that our young teachers are getting disaffected and choosing to go abroad for better conditions of service and better pay. So I think it's, 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 it behoves all of us to make an effort to get this thing sorted out. I think it's in the interest of our country, it's the interest of, of the students in our school, that the brightest and best who come to our training colleges are available for... Uh, work in our schools in Ireland rather than having to take the option or choosing to take the option of going abroad to work um, in foreign countries and in in schools in foreign countries. And without a a resolution, school closures are a possibility? That's something that will be looked at now by our Central Executive Committee on our meeting uh, next Wednesday. Okay, Joe, listen, thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Much appreciated. Joe Colleen is president of uh, the Irish National Teachers Organisation, the INTO. Brings our programme to us conclusion today because our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, thanks to Maggie McGuire and Ross Leahy for researching Chris Murray in the Control Tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.